We're in James chapter 4 today. We're going to be focusing on verses 4 through 10. Let me encourage you to go ahead and turn there in a Bible. Uh, have that in front of you as we walk through it. You'll be able to see where I'm making references. It's, it is His Word that does the work. We believe that fully. Uh, I think I have some great opinions, but I can guarantee you they are not as good as His Word. And so I would rather you see that we are taking it from His Word. Now, I'll also just tell you, uh, for those of you that were here for the faith section of James, I, uh, I feel the same way about this one. I, there's so much here that we could deal with. Um, but here's what, here's what I realized this morning as I was thinking through this. Avengers Endgame is three hours. Have you seen it? Okay, see? If you can sit through Avengers Endgame for three hours, we can focus on the Word of God for about an hour. Maybe an hour and a half. Maybe two. We'll see. No, I'm just kidding. It's not going to be that bad. But, but we do have a lot to get through. Uh, let's, let, let, me, let me quit messing around and uh, let's really dig in. So we're going to begin reading in verse 1 just for the context to frame out the text or f- frame out what we're going to say. Uh, and, and, and we'll read through verse 10. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So let me just catch people up that weren't here last week and remind us where we're at. James is confronting people with their personal pursuit of happiness apart from God. He is, he is confronting them, calling them to see that they are running after things that are actually dividing them from each other and from the Lord. And, and, and you can clearly see that because your prayer life isn't working, it's lacking, and then when you do pray, it's not working because you ask for your selfish pursuit. And, and, and because you're after your selfish pursuits, there's divisions among us. And, and so he says that shouldn't be. Now that's pretty pretty bold, it's pretty in your face, but it's about to get a little bit further into your face. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And he will exalt you. Let's pray. Father, with the power of your grace, the fullness of your love, would you call your people to walk in the way that you expect them to? Would you empower us, enable us, to do what we can't do on our own. I pray these things, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Christian, 
To be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God, so act with faith and wisdom to live repentantly. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. That's a mouthful. I'll say it again. I know some of you like to take notes. I'll give you a second to write it down. Christians, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God, so act with faith and wisdom to live repentantly. We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. Now, we're going to work through this this main idea, this big idea that I think this text presents to us. And we're going to look at the three parts of this statement as as it comes out of James' text. So the first part, to be friends with the world, is to be an enemy with God. I might say or rephrase this way. We can be friends with the world or we can be friends with God, but we can't be friends with both. I mean, James writes, I mean, clearly, I think, I think it's a clear enough explanation. You adulterous people. I don't, he's not playing here. He's serious. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? That is an enemy. That is war. That is division from. Whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. We can be friends with the world. We can be friends with God. We can't be friends with both. What James is not saying, let me just make sure we hear this because I don't want anybody running out of here and not being friendly. James is not saying, go be a jerk to people who aren't Christians. James is not saying we shouldn't be the friendly, compassionate, concerned with the, with the brokenness that we see in the world around us. He, shouldn't, he is not saying that we should turn a blind eye to the injustices that are going on in the world around us. He, he has nothing there. That is not his intent. What he is saying is that we can't be united to or walking in the way of the world at the same time that we claim to be walking in or walking with and walking in the way of God. There's no, there, there, there is no gray area here. There's no line of demarcation, no fence for us to straddle. To be friends with the world, to follow their influence, to follow their patterns, to live after their ways, to live in the same way and for the same pursuits and for the same reasons that, that the world apart from God lives. We pit ourselves against God. We become an enemy with him. We separate ourselves from him. And if we are going to separate ourselves, if we are going to commit ourselves to God and live in the way that he's called us to and and be the people he's commanding us to be, we will separate ourselves from the world. Practically speaking, you will either offend God or you will offend people. You cannot live to please both at any time. Again, I'm not suggesting that we should be jerks to people. There's no fence to straddle here, though. There's no gray area to live in. James leaves us no room. By the inspired word of God, there is no room. This is is less a fence to straddle, less a a line to kind of waver over. It's more two paths that don't even parallel one another. They're two paths that go radically different directions. One is away from God and one is toward God. They're not even on the same plane, though. It's not like we stand here in the middle looking one way and looking the other. They're radically different paths going to radically different destinations. But James doesn't leave it just with the friends and enemy thing. He goes just a bit deeper. See, James is writing to a very specific group of people. He's writing to Christians. And if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian and you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ... 
He's writing to you. See, we've not just been befriended by God. Oh, we have been. Don't misunderstand. (laughs) But it's deeper. James calls out, I almost called him Paul, (laughs) because it's so bold, like Paul. James calls us out as adulteresses. You see, this... This, this relationship we're in is more than just a couple of friends who are acquainted with one another who hang out and, and I don't know, shoot bottle rockets on the weekend. I don't know why that's the thing that came to mind, but that's the thing that came to mind. This is not just, not just a couple of friends who have common interest. This is a God who looked at you, who looked at me, who looked at his people and said, you are my bride. This is not just friends playing around. This is a God who looks at us and says, if you will not live for me and with me, you are cheating on me. You are the wife cheating on her husband. You are the husband cheating on his wife. And we see the seriousness, we see the weight of it, not just in in what he says here uh, in this first verse, in verse 4, but we see it in verse 5. James points to God as being the jealous husband who's been cheated on, showing us the serious nature of our sin against him. And we, we, can, we, can, we can easily just generalize this and say, oh, when I go do this, this, or this, I, it's a sin against God. Well, that kind of lacks the punch that I think James intends to punch us with. You adulterous people. Now, to be fair, verse 5, every commentary I read, every commentary I read highlighted the difficulty of translating and interpreting that verse. There's there's some nuances in the Greek and some of the ways that some ambiguity in the language that makes it very difficult. Uh, And and if you're reading from the NIV or the NASB, some of these others, they, they translate it differently. I think the ESV has it right here. God is jealous for his people. He he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Douglas Moo, in his commentary on this passage, writes, The abrupt and harsh, you adulterous people, marks the beginning of one of the most strongly worded calls to repent that we find anywhere in the New Testament. And it's that verse, I think, that determines how we interpret verse 5. He's calling us adulterers if we live in sin, And if we pursue sin and purposely run from him and live as the world has lived, he's calling us adulteresses because he is the jealous husband, the husband who has been sinned against, the bridegroom who has only ever been faithful, who has never done anything to cheat on us, who has only ever been concerned with our good. Now, jealousy... Normally, I, I know in our culture, you know, to be jealous is sometimes a, a negative thing. It's a, it's, it, it carries a, a negative connotation, a negative weight with it. But, but this isn't some character flaw in God. It's like not, God isn't sinning or isn't wrong for being jealous. Isn't some lack of judgment on his part. His jealousy is driven by the perfect, unconditional, and ever faithful love he has for his people. In fact, you might say, if he were not jealous over you, 
it might indicate that he doesn't care for you and your good. Oh, go off and live in sin. Don't experience the fullness of joy in me. Go live and do whatever you please. Be your own God. Determine your own path. Do your own thing. I know what's best for you, but I don't want to encroach upon your sovereignty. I don't, I, don't want to let, I, don't, I don't want to make you miss out on anything this broken, dying world has to offer. I don't want to tell you the truth about where sin leads. I'll just stay back here and be quiet and let you wallow. God loves you too much for that. He cares too deeply for his bride for that. God has only ever been perfectly faithful. And he knows that our greatest joy is to be faithful to him in return. He knows that the only way we know the fullness and experience the benefits and blessings to their completion is to live in the way he calls us to live. It is right for him and he has every right to be jealous. But don't miss this. James is not messing around because James knows the seriousness and the gravity of what we do when we live like everyone else. We cannot, we cannot be faithful to God while we are flirting with the world. It is impossible. It will not happen. You cannot have your pet little sin that you stroke and you, you just appreciate. And I've got this little thing that nobody even has to know about. It's my little secret. And it makes me feel so good and so comfortable. I don't remember who I heard say it, but there's no such thing as a pet sin. That sin you cling to as your pet is a lion seeking to devour you, to destroy you. We cannot flirt with the world and be faithful to God at the same time. So James says, quit flirting. Let me just apply this to a real-life situation, some very current events. Let me preface it with, with what James does not want us to hear. He does not want us to hear him saying that we should be jerks, that we should be running around uh, uh, being offensive purposefully. He's not saying that we shouldn't be friendly and compassionate and helpful. He does not give us an excuse to be rude here. Calling us to live like our Savior Himself. But you've probably heard about it over the last several weeks. Abortion has been in the news over and over. And I even want to preface this if, if you're someone who has been, um, if you have aborted a baby, my intent is not to cause condemnation or conviction, but to walk in the truth. And to call the church to truth. And to illustrate how we can't do anything but. But over the last few weeks, because abortion has been such a hot topic, eight states have recently changed their laws to, redeem, to, to, limit, the, to, to limit the access of abortion. Alabama just put a ban, just outright ban. The governor, I think it was just this last week, signed it into law. Our own state joined several others 
uh, in passing what's called a heartbeat law. So after eight weeks, you can't abort the baby. Um, there's just these restrictions. In light of that, people have been voicing their opinions all over the place. Uh, you go on social media today and you hear people crying out, even professing Christians crying out for a woman's choice. One post I came across applauded the Episcopal Church for their stance. And so I I thought, well, you just get this little snippet here. Maybe that's not everything that it says. So I go to to, um, see what the Episcopal Church writes. And from their 1994 resolution regarding birth control and abortion, it says this. It's a long statement. I'm not going to read it all. The words aren't on the screen. Just ask you to listen. It says, all human life is sacred from its inception until death. This is how it starts. The church takes seriously its obligation to help form the consciences of its members concerning this sacredness. The common book of prayer affirms that the birth of a child is joyous and a solemn occasion in the, fam- in the life of a family. It's also an occasion for rejoicing in the Christian community. We regard all abortion as having a tragic dimension calling for the concern and compassion of all the Christian community. There's a lot there that we can agree with that we would say, yes! They're not being strong enough, I think, in some of the tragic dimension language. They're not, not necessarily dealing directly with what's happening when we abort children. Might also be called murder. There's a lot here as it begins and it opens that we would agree with. There's a lot of other paragraphs that point out some of the responsibilities they see as a church, but then it comes to this concluding paragraph. We believe that legislation concerning abortions will not address the root of the problem. We therefore express our deep conviction that any proposed legislation on the part of a national or state or on part of national or state governments regarding abortions must be take special care to see that the individual's conscience is respected. Wait a minute. What about the individual that's not getting a say? To see that the individual's conscience is respected and that the responsibility of individuals to reach informed decisions in this matter is acknowledged and honored as the position of this church. They're trying their best to affirm both God as the sovereign while at the same time not to act against what they clearly see as the sovereignty of an individual's conscience or choice. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And you know, you know me. If you if you come to church here, you know that I am I am against I, I am against standing against our brothers and sisters who are pursuing Christ and calling them and, and, and just because we have some secondary issue that we disagree on and calling them out on it. But this is wrong. This is wrong. It, it's, Utterly useless to anyone because affirming the person's right to choose over the sacred sacredness of the life of the unborn is absolutely sinful. They've made the individual's choice to be the supreme and sovereign choice and denied God's right to command his creation and to live and, and expect them to live in a certain way. And they do that in the name of knowing that legislation doesn't change hearts. Here's a, here, here, here's a, it's got nothing to do with sermon, but, but let me just tell you this. Government's legislation was never intended to change hearts. That is not God's purpose for the legislation that governments put in place. The Bible teaches us the purpose of government is to, res, to restrain evil and reward good. 
Not change hearts. The gospel changes hearts. The government's supposed to be fighting for justice, for equality, for making good laws to protect the weakest among us. The Episcopalian church will stand accountable for this, and it breaks my heart for them. Because as leaders are making these decisions, there's brothers and sisters that are consumed in this, in this denomination. They're being led astray. We should be on our knees before a holy God praying that they'd have their eyes open. These are the people that James is writing to. These are the people that that the reason for these words, for a people who are so consumed with being in the world that they want to be of it. You know what's interesting though? He doesn't call out something as, as strong as abortion. When you go back to verses one through three, he's calling out things like pursuit of personal passions, praying for selfish gain. The division that this between us being the the hedonistic pursuit within me, the desire for pleasure over anything else. But these attitudes that he addresses are the very motivations that lead the world to act in the way it does. And they're the very motivations we got to repent of if we're no longer going to live as the world does. Christian, listen, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God. We cannot, we cannot be friends with the world at the same time as being a friend with God. We, we, we can either be friends with the world or we can be friends with God, but we cannot be friends with both. So act with faith and wisdom to live repentantly. It's the second phrase of our big idea. To be friends with God, this is a call to action, and this is what James intends it to be. To be friends with God, we must turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil. We must turn away from the world, the flesh, and the devil. In other words, we must repent. The idea is to have a change of mind so deep and so real that it doesn't just change the way we think about things. It changes the way we act in the midst of things. So, so this again, I, sorry, this, all of this stuff floating around in my head. I'm listening to a guy named uh, Stephen Crowder. I don't think he's Christian at all. I, I mean, I just don't believe that. But he's got, he goes onto college campuses and he puts out this table and it says, I'm pro-life or I'm whatever his stance is he's taking that day. He's a conservative. Uh, I think he's probably Republican. Uh, but he's got this table he sets out on college campuses and he seeks to engage in conversation and debate. And on this particular video, he says, his table says, I'm pro-life, change my mind. And people sit down and and debate with him, discuss with him, trying to change his mind. I think his hope is to change their mind, knowing that if we have a change of mind about what's happening, we have a change of action. He knows that if he can convince enough people that abortion is murder, that they'll quit aborting babies. And they'll quit supporting politicians who support babies. Hear, hear me. I'm not about trying to tell you how to vote on anything. I'm just I, I'm trying to illustrate a point from the Scripture. It, it changes when we have a change of mind, and it's a deep and effective change of mind. It changes everything about how we act. It always will. Oh, that, that stove, that's hot. Well, I don't believe you. I touch it and I find out it's hot. How many times have you heard someone say, well, you only do it once. Had a change of mind. 
This is a deep, effective change of mind. So I quit touching things that are hot and quit burning me. That, that's what he's getting at. He's been pointing out actions since he opened the letter. James has been, been challenging us with this reality that because we have faith in Jesus Christ as Lord, he expects our actions to be driven by that faith. He expects our actions and patterns of living then to, to look differently than those in the world because of that faith. But remember, he didn't stop at faith, did he? He brought in wisdom. He says, hey, with your faith... Ask God for wisdom. Ask for a heavenly wisdom so that you can understand and apply what you know to be true about God and what you believe and trust about God to to your life as you live it. Because God didn't write down everything that could possibly happen to us. He didn't write down every decision. He didn't give us a a, a specific step-by-step, play-by-play list of instructions to follow. He said, trust me. Live every day trusting me. That means that in some way I've got to have wisdom for him, from him to begin to see how trusting him gets applied in every situation and every circumstance. Now, the illustration we've been using to this point is abortion. So how does trusting him apply for the single mom who doesn't see a way forward, who doesn't know anything better? But here's the world telling her, just choose. It's just a lump of cells. It's not a big deal. I trust God that he has promised he will never leave me or forsake me, that he has my best interest in mind, and he is the one who put this life in me. Yeah, I made a choice to be a part of that. But life only comes by his hand. So instead of taking control and ending that life, I'm going to trust him. And I'm going to give birth to this baby. I'm going to pray either for parents who would adopt it and care for it, Which I can guarantee you there's people in this room that would do that. I'm going to seek a family to adopt. Oh, but the foster system's so broken. Trust God. He loves your baby more than you know. Wisdom is necessary to walk through these circumstances. And now, James is saying it's not just faith and it's not just wisdom. It is repentance We must turn from what the world has to say, from the wisdom that the world would offer us. We must turn from it. We must quit listening to the the temptations of the devil. We must quit listening to the whispering evil words of the evil one. And we must set our own personal desires and the pursuit of our own selfish passions aside that we might walk with him. We must live in repentance. We must apply faith and wisdom So that we can be friends with God. And if we're going to do that, it is going to be because in faith and wisdom we have turned away from the world. We have turned away from the passions of our flesh. And we have turned away from the devil. James is convinced. He's convinced that Christian life will be motivated by this set of parameters. He's calling us to anything less. Anything less is adultery. How do we see him calling us to it? Submit. To your God. Verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Submit to Him. Set down your will. Set down the pursuit of your own life. Set it down. Quit listening to what your flesh wants. And and listen to what God has commanded. Resist the devil, he says next. Quit quit listening to to the whispering words of the evil one. It's done nothing ever but cause trouble. 
That, that fruit won't kill you. God's just trying to keep something from you. He doesn't want you to have all that you could have. Resist the devil. James gives us a promise here. If we resist the devil, if we'll follow the example of Christ in the wilderness, speak the truth to the enemy as he tempts us to believe lies, the devil will flee. Because the devil knows he's got no power to stand against the one who has power. He knows he doesn't have anything to offer. See, when we resist the devil, then we can submit to God. This isn't some passive thing. This is a willful decision to place ourselves under his authority. To, a, a willful decision to live according to his will. To deny our own will. No longer pursuing our fleshly passions. No longer living according to the lies of the devil. No longer flirting with the world. Instead, living in obedience to him. Seeing his authority over us. Third, second, he says, draw near to God. Draw near to God. Verse 8. The idea here is that we prioritize our relationship to Him over everything else. We, we seek to walk or live closely with Him. I mean, what kind of relationship would this be if this is just some passive pen pal? I hope He's there when I pray because that's when I really need Him. Like when I'm out of control, that's when I'm going to call on God. That's when I'm going to try to walk closely with Him. When, when I can't understand how things are working, I need Him now. So God, please be with me. No, no, this is an ongoing, everyday, drawing near to Him. He is our husband. We are His spouse. What kind of marriage is it when spouses don't relate intimately? I don't know that we'd call it a good one, would we? Never any time together. Never conversation together. Always going different directions. Listen, we need to realize this. This is not God calling us to make the first move. He's already done that. He came to us. He, he, he sent Jesus after us. He pursued us. But at some point, he says, we must, quit, we must quit running after the passions of our flesh. We must quit running after belonging in this world. And we must quit listening to the influence of the devil. We must wash our hands, he says in verses uh, 8 and uh, 9. Um, no, it's in verse 8. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. We must purify our hearts. We, we, we must be wretched and mourn and weep over our sin and the sins of our brothers and sisters instead of approving of everyone's sin. And oh, well, I don't want to infringe upon their conscience. We need to call sin, sin. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. When we look at where we're at apart from God, when we look at who we are before God, how could we stand before Him and say, You must accept me. I'm coming. You've you got to take me. Just a minute ago, uh, uh, Bob read from Isaiah as he was responding to God's call. Who, who shall I send? And, and Isaiah's like, Here am I. Send me. But the very first part of that was as he's standing in the throne room of God, he sees the holiness of God and he hears the angels crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he's just like, I am a man of unclean lips. 
from a people of unclean lips. He can't help but see his brokenness and his sinfulness. Instead of standing up and celebrating before God, he mourns and he weeps. Because he recognizes he does not belong. Do you get that? Do you understand that? You're being called to do something that is so unnatural to us. You don't belong. I don't belong in and of myself. In and of yourself. We look at the world. Why would God do a good thing for this broken world? He owes us nothing. And yet in His Word, He says, draw near to me. Draw near to me, walk intimately with me, humble yourself before God is the third command. The idea here is that you recognize who you are. You recognize your position before Him. He is sovereign, not me, not the conscience of some broken world. He is sovereign. But as His bride, we are not worthless We have intrinsic value. This is why He is so jealous over us. His love upon us and His work in us, the Spirit that He made to live within us, is valuable to Him. So we're not the worms in the dirt. We're not just worthless. Brothers and sisters, a right recognition of humility is to see who we are before Him. To humble ourselves is to admit that we are at His mercy. That He is right to condemn us because that is what we have earned from Him. That is what what we do deserve is condemnation. And in His sovereignty, He has every right to smite and destroy. To humble ourselves before God is to admit that any gift we receive from God comes by grace to be friends with God we must turn away from the world the flesh and the devil we must submit ourselves to God even though they won't we must draw near to God even though they're running away we must humble ourselves before God even though they would stand arrogantly before him and say you owe me Christian To be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God so act with faith and wisdom and live repentantly We have nothing to lose and everything to gain. I know it can sound, it can sound scary. But if I give this up, if I walk in this way, single mom, if I have this baby, it's going to alter my life forever. It can seem like God's limiting our joy, keeping us from something that is better That is the lie of the devil. As I've already mentioned, he's been telling that lie since the beginning and has done no one any good. It has only brought death and destruction. But even Jesus talks about it in terms of losing life, right? To gain life, you must lose this life. Pick up your cross and follow me. That's pretty scary. That sounds like death. What is there to gain in that? It doesn't sound rewarding. It sounds like I'm going to have to give everything up. But in contrast to what we have to gain, that loss is nothing. 
Can we just walk back through this passage just one last time as we consider this third phrase? The enemy of God will never be satisfied while the friend of God is given grace upon grace. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever worships or wishes to be, sorry, I can't read. Whoever wishes to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. He gives more grace. He gives more grace to us. And that in, implies that we've already received some grace. Like we're already recipients of grace. And, and yet we're running around trying to be friends with the world. Trying to find a way in this world on our own. Trying to pursue the passions of the flesh. Causing divisions and fights among us. And God gives us more grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We'll never be able to pay him back. And God in no way is he obligated to do this. But he gives us more. He gives us more of what He's already given us. He's given it to us in His Son, Jesus. Through Christ, He has chosen us, adopted us, redeemed us, forgiven us, made us His bride. (laughs) But He doesn't stop there. He doesn't end at that and say, I hope you make it the rest of the way. He gives us more grace so that we can do the very thing He's calling us to do. He gives us the grace so that we are able, enabled and empowered to do the very thing He's calling us to do. This grace has radically transformed our relationship to God. No longer enemies, friends. No longer distant, but bride. And it radically transforms us and our abilities to live in submission to God. To walk faithfully toward God. To draw near to Him and to humble ourselves before Him. Even when we falter and fail. Because if you didn't catch it already, James is writing this to a people who are faltering and failing. There is more grace. And more grace. It's not reason to run and just live licentiously and do whatever we want to do. Brothers and sisters, this is more reason to draw near to Him, to humble ourselves before Him, and to submit ourselves to Him. Because when we do, there is more Grace, more good that we don't deserve, more good from God that we can't earn, more good from God that we could never pay back, and more good from God that He was never obligated to give us. Even for a faltering, failing, adulterous bride. That blows me away. That makes me want to run sit down at his feet. It makes me want to walk with him so closely. But James isn't done. This God who opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, he, he's the one who, when we draw near to God, he draws near to us. Can you just think about that for a second? The God who said, let there be light and light shone. The God who spoke everything around us into existence. The God who had the power to raise Christ from the dead. That God 
infinite, holy, transcendent, above all things, all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present, always faithful, that God draws near to you. What? He what? He doesn't hold me at a distance. He doesn't tell me I don't deserve to belong. He doesn't tell me that I should go away and go someplace else. No, no, no. He draws near to you. In fact, you see it happen in that, in, uh, you know, Bob read from Isaiah. I used it as, as an illustration. I'm a man of unclean lips from a people of unclean lips. He sends an angel and that angel takes a coal from the altar and the angel touches He makes Isaiah worthy to stand in his presence and speak on his behalf. So yeah, by yourself, in what you got going on, on your own, yeah, you don't deserve to be there. But the grace upon grace upon grace upon grace that he has been bestowing upon you has radically transformed you. Radically transformed your relationship with him. It's radically transformed your ability to live. And it's radically transformed your worthiness to stand in his presence. You are able, you are acceptable You are righteous, not because you are, but because he has made you that. So that he draws near, he comes close. We'll be able to fellowship with him. We'll know his presence. We will know his power. We will know his protection. We will be able to count it all joy like James calls us to in chapter 1. We'll be able to count it all joy when we fight, face trials of various kinds because we will know God is with us. We will be walking with God. We will be able to hear His Word and do His Word because He will empower us by His grace to do it. We will be able to uh, experience His love that doesn't show partiality based on who we are or what we deserve, our social economic position. He loves perfectly. As he draws near to us, we will be able to practice the faith that we profess. As James has called us to, we will be able to apply his wisdom because he is with us. And we will be able to walk more repentantly every day because God is with us. Draw near to him. And he draws near to you. And the third thing I'd point out that he does as, as we... As, as we have this grace upon grace that James points out, is that God exalts us. The one who deserves to be exalted lifts you up. Look at that last verse, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. See, when we recognize who we are apart from him, what we truly deserve from him, he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He exalts us to a place that we don't deserve to be, that we would never achieve on our own. He sets us aside as his bride. And he is the ever faithful bridegroom. He ends our weeping and our mourning and he gives us every reason to dance. The, the weeping, the mourning, the, the, the tears, the, 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 that's all a result of our sin. But when we recognize who we are before God, He exalts us, He lifts us up, He gives us reason to party. He, he makes us righteous and acceptable by faith. Like, like Abraham, as James told us, that Abraham was justified by his faith. He makes us the same. He makes us righteous. 
by our faith. He, he, makes us even the, he, he makes even the worst experiences beneficial. The very worst thing you can endure in your life, He makes beneficial to you and to me. That's what He opened with. Count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. Because this gives, to, gives away to steadfastness. And steadfastness, when it's complete, it, 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 it leads you to complete, completion lacking in nothing. It makes us better, stronger, deeper in faith. Even the worst experiences He makes beneficial to us. He makes us wise so we can live out the commands He commands us to live in. He makes us the mortal, immortal. There's a song I heard it this morning on the way here. This is what, again, this wasn't even in the sermon, but I heard it on the way here this morning, and I thought, how powerful is that? How amazing is that? It's by a guy named Phil Wickham. I don't know if you know him. I don't even know this guy's theology. He's got this one song I really appreciate. It's called "When My Heart Is Torn Asunder." I just want to read you the chorus. There is hope beyond the suffering, joy beyond the tears, peace in every tragedy, love that conquers fear. I have found redemption in the blood of Christ. My body might be dying, but I'll always be alive. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He exalts you. He'll never exalt us above Himself, but He will exalt us much higher than we have ever deserved to be. Non-Christian. I don't know if you're here today. Maybe you've been been playing church all your life. Maybe you've been practicing religion, thinking you can prove to God that you'll be good enough. Let me just speak honestly to you for a minute. These commands don't belong to you, but neither do these promises. You must believe. Trust in Jesus Christ. Trust in His perfect life. He did everything. Everything we've talked about today, He has done it perfectly without fail. Trust in His perfect life. Trust in His sacrificial death. He died on the cross in your place for your sin. His death pays the price. For anyone who trusts in Him, His death pays the price. It satisfies the debt. It brings our sin to Him and replaces it with His righteousness. All we have to do is trust in Him. Trust in His victorious resurrection. On the third day, He rose again from death. And the power that rose Him from the dead is the same power that that brings everyone else up from the dead that trusts in Him Trust in Him and Him alone. And then, and and then alone, do these commands become yours along with these promises. Christian, to be friends with the world is to be an enemy with God. So act with faith and wisdom to live repentantly. You have nothing to lose and everything to gain. The reality is you might be thinking and sitting here wondering, why don't I sense God near me? Why don't I, why doesn't it seem like God's paying attention to my prayers? Why is it that, that I feel all alone in this? Why is it that it's so difficult for me to see his grace at work in me and around me? Why, why, why? 
brother or sister. It's not because God is not faithful. We aren't. Repent. Turn to him. There is nothing you have to lose and everything to gain. God isn't commanding these things of us, brothers and sisters, to live in a way that limits us, but blesses us. James writes these words inspired by God to write them because he wants you to enjoy more of God. And I preach them today to you. Not just to give you something to do on Sunday, but as your friend, as your brother, as your pastor, I love you. I love you deeply. And I've become convinced more and more that to know the the greatness of the joy that we have to gain in Jesus Christ, we must hear these words. Run to him. Repent of your sin. Humble yourself before him. There is grace upon grace. Let's pray.